Good morning. Uh, that video just makes me want to go run or something. And after, about a quarter mile into it, I regret that I watched that video. Um, but I, I love the beginning of the new year. I don't know about you. There's just something in me that likes the reset and the restart, the kind of time at the end of the year to step away from vacation and to kind of just enjoy family and to enjoy Christmas and then to start to dream. That By nature, I'm a dreamer. By nature, I'm kind of drawn to what hasn't happened that could happen. And there's this idea of more. I think we're born with, right? I mean, I was hanging out with my uh, little nephew uh, over the course of Christmas break, and he's a little over one, and he can't, can't articulate a lot of words yet, but he knows how to do this because he's learned the sign language from more. And we were kind of playing, and I was rocking and spinning, and, and he would come back after I'd put him on the ground, and he would kind of you know, falter and waver a little bit. He would come back, and he would go like this. You know, and just putting his little arms up. And even watching him do that, I'm like, we were made for more. That, that, that's just something that's embedded in us, that I've never met someone who says, yeah, I'm good. I've got everything I need in life. I mean, it's just more is this drive that we have that as you go into 2017, that you probably, like me, you're looking at the relationships, you're looking at your finances, you're looking at the different areas in your life, and you see areas where you want to see more of it. You're like, you know what, I want a richer relationship this year. I want, I want more transparency in this area. Or, you know, I want, I want to see our finances be in a place of more, where we have less debt, where we have less pressure, that this more drives us, and it pushes us. And, and that's healthy, and that's an okay thing to, to step into this new year and say, you know what, I want more. I want my relationships to be better. I want my financial position to be better. I want my life to be better in 2017 than it was in 2016. And that to be able to have this time of the year where we make bold decisions, where we dream and imagine bold things for our life is the reason we wanted to kick off the new year with a series called Resolution. That I really genuinely believe that at the end of this series that it will set us up, it will set you up if you choose to have a 2017 that's better than any year you've had before. That in our household, in the midst of going through a, a dark struggle with some of our family members and grieving and processing through all of that, even my wife and I this past week, and just saying, you know what, I think this is going to be our best year that we've ever had. And it doesn't matter that, that we have those things going on in our lives. In spite of those things, this is going to be our best year. And here's why I think that. And this series is really meant to kind of infuse you with that same level of hope and expectation for what's the more you're looking for in your life this year? What's that more that you're hungering for? And to jump off and to kick off this series by going to a guy who was in the same place, even if it wasn't the same time of the year, the same mindset that we have. He was looking for more. He was hungering for more. And this guy, in, in a course of a conversation with Jesus, gets reoriented a little bit, and Jesus gives him two mores that's worth living for. That in the midst of this guy coming, hungering for more, longing for more in his life, Jesus says, I hear you. Here's two mores that are really worth living for. And it's how I want to start today, is by looking at this conversation that Jesus has with this, this man, who in many ways, some of you can connect with, he had it, he had it together. Things were going really well. But something inside of him was crying out, there's got to be more. And it's in that conversation that we see these two mores 
worth living for that Jesus points out. So if you uh, have the Encounter Church app like G- Jason referenced earlier, um, then you can click on it and you'll see uh, message notes or Bible. Both of those are already preloaded for you. Um, if you don't have the Encounter Church app or you're still kind of seeking the fire it up, it'll actually be behind me on the screen. But let me set the context before I read it. Um, it's going to be found in the book of Luke or the letter of Luke. And it, Luke is written um, by a guy named Luke. That's where the name comes from. And Luke was a doctor in the first century who becomes a, becomes a Christian. And Luke is a little bit more um, analytical, a little bit more historical in his bent. And so Luke starts to, to do some research and inspections and interviews. And out of these interviews and, and kind of digging in this like journalistic drive, um, Luke writes for us the letter of Luke, which is the account and the research and the kind of his findings on the life of Jesus. That we know that from reading the, the letter of Luke and what we know about Luke, Luke interviews Mary, Jesus' mom. That he interviews the disciples, that he goes to some of the places, and that his research is so in-depth that it's not just one volume, it's a two-volume set. That he ends up writing the second volume, which is what we call the book of Acts. That volume one and volume two of Luke's research becomes this bedrock of early Christian history. Luke's a historian. And in the book of Luke, Luke's laying out this kind of the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus in this chronological fashion. And towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, we see Jesus at kind of the prime. He's famous. Everyone knows who he is. He's not just famous with a group of people or a region. He's famous in the entire nation from the rich to the poor, from the educated to the uneducated, everyone knows who Jesus, this miracle-working teacher, is. And everyone wants a conversation with him or wants him to heal him. Everyone wants something from Jesus. And this man comes to Jesus seeking the same thing. So in Luke 18, I want you to, to read along or follow me on the screen. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Well, all these things I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. And truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come of eternal life. This is this account. This is this short dialogue that has the power to change the trajectory of this man's life. And it does. It's a very powerful, short conversation that as modern readers reading this, it can be confusing. There's certain things that get said in here that causes even greater confusion about faith. It causes confusion about wealth. It, it, it has prompted a lot of people to make choices out of this passage that perhaps Jesus never intended. And that's why I want to press into this and understand the bigger, broader context of this 
this conversation of who this guy is and why he's coming to Jesus. And in the midst of that, understand and pull out these two mores that are worth living for, not just for him, but for us as well. You see, this guy who comes to him, it says that a certain ruler in verse 18, but this account of this man who comes to Jesus is pretty well historically known. In fact, the first four books of the New Testament is filled with, um, three of them are filled with this account. You see, there are four different, not different in how it happens, but different authors with different audiences that write the first four letters that we find in the New Testament. All of them center around the life, the message, and the ministry of Jesus. And all three of the, those first three, when they're writing their letter to their specific audience, all of them pull this story and this, this moment. And when you read all three of those accounts... Together, what you have is this kind of fuller picture of who this guy was. This, in Luke's account, he's a certain ruler. But when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you push them together, what you find is what has traditionally been referred to this man as the rich, young ruler. That maybe growing up, if you grew up in church, or maybe even in the midst of reading some book that references this story, you've heard him called the rich, young ruler. That This guy... From what we can tell when you accumulate these three stories and you get this full picture is that he is incredibly wealthy. That he's young. He's, this isn't a guy later in life. This is a guy who's got it together early on. And he's not just got it together in the financial area. He's got it together in the religious area. Like he's, he's dotting his I's. He's crossing his T's. He's, he's doing the synagogue thing. He's really faithful to faith. And that he's got influence. This guy, if he was alive today, would have graduated from some university in Boston and then went on to graduate school and got his doctorate. He would have been a guy that leaders would have tapped to, to get wisdom from. He would, have got, he would have been on a cover of a magazine today. He would have made a Fortunes or a Forbes list. This guy has it together. And in the midst of having it all together, in the midst of having all these things going for him, he comes to Jesus with this burning question because he recognizes something is missing. I don't know if you've ever connected with that, but I remember a season in my life where I remember looking in a mirror and saying to myself, there has to be more to life than what I have. Than just going through the motions, of just going through the routine, there has to be more that I was made for. That in the midst of college and growing up really poor and um, I was the first one in my family to graduate high school and first one in my family to graduate college. I thought if I grew up being bullied, I, I really kind of grew up not having too many friends and partially it was my, my fault because I was a turd and, and just a know-it-all. And man, like I had a lot of things in my life that I thought if I could get them, if I could just be popular, if I could just get a girl to notice me, if, if I could just be... If I could just have some money or be educated, then I would be complete. And I remember getting into college, and I was a TA for organic chemistry, which means I was helping teach labs and tutor students as a junior in college. And I was taking grad-level chemistry courses and was on my way, kind of working towards this medical school route and everything going for me, scholarships and help start a fraternity. I'd gotten to all those things I always thought. I needed, and I remember looking in the mirror one night and being like, there has to be more, because there's still something missing inside of me, and that's where this guy's at. 
Something's missing. He knows it's missing. And so he sees Jesus and he says, that guy has it together. I'm going to go ask him. And when he goes to Jesus, he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like this guy is wrestling with deep stuff. This isn't an investment question. This is about life investment. He's like, I'm thinking about my whole life and what really it's made for and what really it should be used for. And how do I get that eternal life? How do I get that life that's everlasting, that thing that goes beyond just going through the motions of life? Jesus, help me. This quiet desperation of this educated, powerful, wealthy man. And Jesus responds Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony and honor your father and mother. Like this is a weird response to a man who comes to Jesus with this burning question of what's the more I'm looking for. And Jesus' response is brilliant. Jesus cuts through and gets to the heart of one of his moors he's looking for. He responds in a way that exposes the misperceptions, the misconceptions this guy had about faith. He he simply says to him in the course of these two verses, these three words, there's more to faith than what you know. That's your first thing. That's the first thing we've got to deal with. With you coming with this heavy question that there's more to faith than what you know. And the way that he unpacks that, the way he draws that out, is he first of all corrects the guy and says, No, 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 you keep making your standards. You're drawing standards based on whoever's one step above you. So I seem to have it a little bit more put together than you. So you're comparing yourself to me and I'm good. He's like, No, no, we don't play the comparison game. If you're going to compare, God's the standard. Not the person, one income level or one education level or one relationship status level higher than you. It's like the comparison's God. He's the standard. But let's just keep rolling with your question. He says, and he starts to list five of the Ten Commandments. Have you noticed that, right? He he lists one, two, three, four, five of different Ten Commandments. Now, the theologians, if you happen to be a theologian in this day, in this time period, you would have kind of been educated on that the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two commandments. And that the kind of the religious leaders, the religious theologians of the day kind of had a way of branching out these five, the Ten Commandments in two separate fives. One of the five was based on how you love others, loving your neighbor. The other five was based on how you love God. Jesus gives him the five around loving your neighbor and how to interact with people. And then Jesus says, but there's one thing you're missing, your, your love for God. And that's why he says, do, do this one thing. Go sell everything you have, which is a big one thing, right? Like one thing is one thing, but when you get told, oh, oh you, you just need to do one thing, you just need to saw off your left arm and then the pain will go away. And you're like, I, I was looking for Advil. Right? This seems a little drastic because Jesus was cutting to the heart of this guy's problem. He's like, look, the problem is, is that your stuff is, is your God. He's like, you 
are more concerned about your stuff than the God whom you claim to be concerned about. That's why he's pushing into this guy's misperceptions. He's like, you don't realize there's more to faith than what you have. Like, God's not a means to your end. He is the end. He's not the ABCs get you started in life. He's the A through Z of life. He's trying to reset this guy's understanding. Jesus is not giving everyone a command. Maybe you're hearing this today and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that for everyone? Like sell everything? No, this is Jesus, the great physician, looking at a patient and realizing this is the prescription to his heart's problem is that his heart has a problem with worshiping his stuff. Jesus isn't making an an indictment against stuff. It's okay to have stuff. It's not okay, according to Jesus, for your stuff to have you. And that's his problem. Is that he has a lot of stuff, but his stuff also has him. He's more concerned about those things than he is about this one thing that he's there for. That's what Jesus is pressing in. There's more to faith. This guy is looking for another check item. He's looking for a transactional exchange. And Jesus says, no, what you need is a relationship. Because he invites him, right? He says, hey, sell everything and then come follow me. Come be with me. Come become like me. He invites him into this relationship with him. Imagine, this guy gets an opportunity to be one of the most elite groups in human history. The 12 disciples. This guy gets an invitation to be part of that. That's incredible what Jesus offers him. Come and know me personally. Don't be a guy in the crowd who asks a question. Be a disciple who spends time with me. Not a transactional exchange, a relational interchange of knowing me. And that's what he offers to this guy because at the heart of this guy's struggle is that he thinks God is just a box that needs to be checked. He sees the doing, the religious kind of routines and rituals as the essence of his faith. He thinks that it's the checking the box of praying and of doing the certain religious things and going to the certain religious things that That's the essence of his religion. And Jesus says, no, those are the expression of your religion. The essence is our relationship. Follow me. And that may sound weird, but if none of us in any other area of our life would be okay with that, right? You would not want the essence of your relationship with your spouse or your friends to be what they do for you. Right? I take the trash out. I make my wife's coffee in the morning. I grab my daughter, and we have our interchange when my wife's just emotionally done and she's tired. I'm like, tap in. I got this. Hey, girl, what's up? Let's talk, right? I mean, like, I do those things for her, not because that is my relationship with my wife, but I do those things as an expression of the love I have for my wife. My wife, the relationship that I have with her is more than me making her coffee, or giving her free time when she's overwhelmed, or taking out the trash, or doing other things around the house for her. 
Those are just expressions of the love I have for him. And that's what this guy is missing, that we do the things that God asks us to, not so that we're okay with God, not so that we become right with God, but we do that out of being right with him. He's like, there's more to faith. I think one of the realities, even this week where I kind of was processing through it, <clears throat> is that one of those moments of tagging in with my wife was we're still detoxing from grandparents. I don't know if any of you have that struggle, right? But uh, my daughter did not have a week of Christmas. She had three weeks of Christmas that was preceded by a birthday week, okay? So, I mean, girl thinks the world's all up revolving around her right now, okay? And so that's kind of what we're detoxing through. And, um, and so also detoxing through traveling, through like bedtimes being thrown out the window, you know, just all this craziness. And so uh, it's late this week and Ella's not asleep and it's way, 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 way past her bedroom. We've just had like the early stages of grandparent detox setting in and cousin detox setting in. And Jenny's in the room with her, and she's like, go to sleep, Ella. Go to sleep. And, and it's escalating. You know, it's like the red telephone gets picked up. We're sending each other crazy emoji faces. Like, it's kind of, it's gone. I'm like, all right, I'm being called in. So, so I walk in because it doesn't count if you go in when they say you need to get in here. It only counts if you get in there before they type that. So I'm like learning to read between the lines. I'm like, the next text is going to be like, you need to get in here. So it doesn't count if I come in after then. I want it to count, right? So I'm going to get in there before she asks, being intentional. So I get in there, and I'm like, hey. And she's like, girl, look, it's still, still awake. And Ella's like, I can't go to sleep. And it's like, go to sleep. Like, right? She's like, I don't know how to go to sleep. I'm like, babe, you have done this consistently every single day for five years straight. Like, if there was a diploma, you would have a doctorate in sleeping. You're so good at sleeping, you can do it in a bed, you can do it on a plane, you can do it in a car, you can do it while I hold you, you can do it anywhere. You are an awesome rock star at sleeping. I don't know how to sleep. Go to sleep. It's really a like simple command. Go to sleep. Three words. I don't know how. Five years of experience as you do. And then she asked this question. How do I go to sleep? I was like, hmm. She's like, Daddy, how, how do you go to sleep? Like, how do I do it? I was like, dang, that's profound. Because, <laughs> you know, at first you want to respond and be like, it's easy. You go to sleep. And then you're like, no, it's actually not that easy. How do you go to sleep? And then I'm like kind of drifting off because I'm like seriously thinking through. Okay, I'm like, well, she's probably not interested in neurochemistry right now. That's at least a year away. Um, and so I'm kind of processing. How do you tell a five-year-old how to do it? Because I got the same problem. I don't have a checklist to go through. And I realized this is a different category than most things for her in life. And this is confusing her because she's got a definition in her head that sleep is just something you go through these boxes and you check and it happens. But that's not really how sleep works. 
I struggle to fall asleep at night. I don't know if any of you do. And those moments where I'm having trouble falling asleep, I know that telling yourself to go to sleep does not work. Right? It doesn't. It just makes you stressful. It just makes you more anxious. It makes it harder to go to sleep. And I realized in the moment, I was like, oh my goodness. As a pastor, I think people have that same struggle because people say, I say, well, it's about faith. And you can say something simple like, well, you just need to have some faith. And most of us look at faith the same way we look at sleep, don't we? Well, how do you do that? How? No, no, no. no. How do you have faith? And so we're sitting there, and I'm laying in the bed, and at this point I've kind of jujitsued this conversation with my daughter, and I'm like, hey, don't think about going to sleep. I don't want you to go to sleep. I want you to close your eyes and try not to go to sleep. And just let me sing to you. And about three minutes later, she was out. But I stayed beside her because I realized, man, this little girl just opened up a whole new world for me. That even as a pastor and a leader, that oftentimes I do the same thing in conversations with people, or that maybe you've had done to you if you've been around faith, where people are like, you just need to have faith. And you're like, but how? It's it's because we treat it different. It's this different category, and we've confused it. And so when Jesus is pressing into him, when Jesus invites him to follow him, Jesus is unlocking for us this idea of faith. You see, at the end of the day, what Jesus says, hey, there's more to faith than just checking a box or going through the routine. What he says is that one of the ways there's more to faith is this invitation to follow me. Which is really an invitation when you sell everything is really an invitation to trust me. So here's the thing. Faith is not a problem that any of us have. Okay? In the same way that my daughter doesn't have a problem falling asleep at night. It's just that we have mislabeled faith And that we do faith regularly without realizing that's what we're actually doing. In the same way that her going to sleep at night happens regularly and she just never realized that's what she was doing. What I mean is that faith at its heart, at its core, is relationship. It's really trust. Right? When you go to a bank and you deposit your check or it's direct deposited, that's a faith step. Here's why. You don't see your money. Right? If you said to them after you put your check in, hey, show me my money. They can't show you your money. They can't. Your money is digital. It's electronic. It's gone into the web. It's sifting and shifting through all these different financial institutions and structures. And every time you walk away from that bank and you pull out your debit card and you swipe it, it's an act of faith. It's an act of trust that the relationship you have with this bank is going to come through. Our entire banking industry is built in faith and trust that they've got it and that I can pull from it. Relationships. When you stand in front of that significant other and they look beautiful and you look beautiful, or in my case, you look a little bit better than you did yesterday, and you say, I do, that's a faith step. You can't see the future. All you have in that moment is a trust of I will. Six years from now, or in my case with my wife looking at me, like 
five months later when I'm bald and overweight and all my good looks have passed away, I'm still going to be committed to you. That was, a tr- that was a faith step for her. Because at the end of the day, faith is about trusting in a relationship. Whether it's with an entity or an individual, it's just simply trust. And that's what Jesus is saying. Trust me. Follow me. Lean into what I'm saying to you. And that there is more to faith. And what I would encourage you, wherever you are in the journey, is here's, here's what I would lean in and encourage you with, is that maybe in 2017 there's more to faith for you too. That maybe you've had the same struggle that the rich young ruler has had and that you've boxed faith into this kind of category, into this kind of checklist, and this kind of to-do, and that maybe there's more to faith than just that. Maybe there's a richness and a fullness that you've never experienced. And maybe you're unsure of how to do faith, but you kind of get the trust thing. And so your next step could be just growing in your understanding. Because how do you trust something or someone? You get to know them a little bit better. And so maybe for 2017, maybe your next step is exploring faith. And here's what I've done for you. On the app is a little tiny gearbox that says resources. I've covered it up so people don't even know what you're doing. And if you click on resources, there is a teaching, a message from one of my favorite preachers in America. I have man crushes. He is a man crush, right? He's a guy that I'm like, he's, I love how he speaks and I love how he teaches. He makes it so simple and clear. And it's like that guy that as a pastor, I look up to. Because we all have those people in our, our, our industry where we're like, I want to be like that guy. This is that guy for me. He's the best. And I've put a link in that resource tab that when you click on it, it'll fire a video. And it's a 42-minute message. You can, you can listen to it in the car. You can watch it when, you know, or maybe you as a couple can watch it in the evening. But it's this really simple, accessible through the web, and it's a starting point for exploring faith. It's a conversation. It's a, a really engaging video about how do you start to explore faith. And for those who want to go further in the conversation, there's more videos and we'll start a group where you can kind of come together and for those who are processing through it can have a safe place to ask those kind of questions and to process through those questions. For others, it may be there's more to faith and it's just growing and developing your faith. Maybe you've never read the Bible. Maybe you've never processed through it. And here's something I've done for you. You'll find in the app something that says John in January. And it's, it's simply the book of John. Throughout the rest of this month, there'll be sections of the book of John in there for you to read. And by the end of this month, if you're willing to spend three to five minutes a day, you will read an entire book of the Bible. The average American barely makes it that far in reading. So you can be ahead of most of America and that by the end of January, you've already read a full book. And you can check that off your box of what to do in 2017. And that underneath that section is two questions that I ask myself regularly when I read the Bible to develop my faith. I said, what do I see? Right? What, what, the observation, what, what am I noticing? And then what does it mean for me? This isn't an interpretation question. This isn't me trying to apply like some poetic filter to what I read. It's just simply looking at the passage and saying, okay, Jesus said we must love one another. We must love our enemies. What does that mean for me? Who are, who are the enemies in my life? Who are those people who frustrate me? What does it look like to love them this week? It's just those simple questions and a little place for you to write. And so for you, it may be John in January is your next step in growing and developing your faith. 
Or for some of you, it may be serving, maybe joining a life group, and then you can click on starting point in the app, and you can do either one of those to put yourself around others who are in this same journey of saying, there's more to faith for me this year in 2017. But what I love about it, just kind of quickly, the next thing he pulls out is in that call where he says, sell everything, give it away, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Is Jesus also says, look, there's not just more to faith, there's more to life. There's more to life than what you've experienced. He doesn't ask, he doesn't call the, the rich young ruler to sacrifice. Many of us would read that and say, okay, this very specific passage, this very specific call to this one man is all about sacrificing. And it's not. If you go and read, what he says is sell it, give it all to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. This isn't sacrifice. This is Jesus exchanging his stuff for significant impact in life. He's like, look, you, you have all this stuff that has you. Here's what I want you to do. Go sell it. Give it all the way to the poor. Jesus is not asking for his money. Jesus is not trying to get anything from this man. Jesus is trying to do something for him. He's like, look, give it all to the poor. Make a difference in the lives of others. Make an impact in these people who don't have what you have. You have so much stuff, and they barely have the necessities for life. Give them life. He's like, make a difference, and then come follow me. And everything that you've lost won't even compare to what you're going to get from me. I'm going to give you treasure that doesn't pass away for this stuff that will. The stuff that you think is the latest and the greatest that will one day be in the trash heap. I'll give you stuff that never passes away. There's this invitation. Come follow me. Lean in. Jesus is like, look, this stuff has you. I want to offer you more. I want to give you more than what you have. I want to give you a life of significance. Because for most of us, if we're being honest, if you kind of get, want to get practical out of this, what he's saying is that the biggest challenge to the life that you want, the thing that's holding you back from grabbing the life that you want is the things you're gripping in the life that you have. Right? Let's just be real. We say we want a life of financial freedom. We want to retire well. We want to have a savings account. But what's holding us back from grabbing that is that we're gripping impulsive buys. And we're gripping the credit cards we keep using. And we can't grab hold of that life until we're willing to let go of this. We say we want to have a great relationship. We say we want to say, I do and I mean it forever. But we keep gripping the flirtatious comments to our coworkers when our spouse isn't around. And that's what we're holding. And you will never grab that if you're still gripping this. That you want to have better communication. You want to be transparent and honest with one another. You want to build up one another. But we keep gripping on the sarcastic, undercutting comments to one another. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't grab this life as long as you're gripping on to this one. And because your stuff has you, you can never, ever experience the significance that you've come looking for because you're still holding on to that. And your problem is this is holding you back from the life that you really want. That for us, for me, for you, that perhaps the thing that you desire to see 
in your life will not come until you're willing to let go of what you're holding on to over here. Bitterness, frustration, the past hurts. You will not experience forgiveness and grace and starting over if you're still holding on to your past. Because the biggest challenge for what you and I often want in this season of life we hope to go to, what often holds us back is the things that we're attached to in this season. And Jesus says, look, if you want to see more there, you've got to let go and have less over here. But see, this isn't it. The, the rest of the story is that the rich young ruler hears it and he walks away sad. He leaves. But I don't believe it's the rest of the story. I think there's more to this story than what we get here. And here's why. Because of my faith, I believe that there's more to life than just this. I do believe that when you die, there is more. There is something greater. There's something broader that we were not made just to live in this small confines of time. If we were, we wouldn't be so surprised by time so frequently. Every time I make statements like, man, that sure flew by. Every time I make a comment about being surprised by time, I'm betraying the fact that I was created to live outside of time forever. That's a philosophical conversation we can get into deeper, but there is something inside of all of us that longs for more, and that's what brought him to Jesus. And I believe one day this man will see Jesus again, just like I will see Jesus again. Instead, this time when he sees Jesus, he's not the rich young ruler. He's the poor, dead, has-been. Because those things, the rich, the young, the ruler, the magazine covers, all that stuff is gone the next time he sees Jesus. And I think in that moment, if I can just kind of have some freedom to get poetic and to get a little bit speculative, I think it could go down like this. Revelation 21, 21 makes this beautiful, beautiful, poetic kind of picture, paints this beautiful, poetic picture of heaven. It says that heaven, the, the, in order for John to capture it, he says that the city's made of gold, which I don't believe heaven is made of gold, right? I mean, I just, gold's a really soft metal. There's some logistical challenges if everything was made out of gold, okay, just, just being for real. But I think what John was trying to do was he was trying to describe heaven from the perspective of being on earth. And he's like, how do I capture? Well, it's like everything in heaven, like the, the simple common stuff of heaven, of heaven is what we view as the most valuable on earth. So the most valuable thing on earth in his time was gold. And he's trying to capture that as he's describing heaven. And what he does in doing so is he says, man, heaven, gold is the concrete. Like gold is the concrete of heaven. And I think the poor dead has been, walks up, sees the face of Jesus, and then sees behind Jesus heaven. And this is the moment that I think Re regret and reality hits him like a ton of bricks. 
and that he realizes that he walked away from Jesus. The poor dead husband that he is then walked away from Jesus because of his wealth, primarily rooted in gold. And now he's standing in front of Jesus realizing he spent his entire life clinging to concrete, holding on to worthless things that did not matter in the end. That he leveraged everything he had, and it was for concrete. The simple throwaway stuff that heaven's full of. So Jesus is like, I'm offering you treasure in heaven. I'm offering you more than what you have right now. You see, when Jesus, that day, the reason you see Peter respond and he's all kind of like confused is that what Peter has is this moment of like, oh my goodness, this is the most, one of the most famous men in this region. And he just walked away from you, Jesus. Like in that day, if you'd have done a snapshot of that moment where Jesus and Peter and the rich young ruler are talking, everyone would have said the rich young ruler is the famous one. But yet if you travel the world and look at churches, what you don't see is the, the cathedral to the rich young ruler. You see the cathedral of St. Peter's at the Vatican. In the end, Peter made a better decision. The rich young ruler is the poor dead has been. All because he made a choice to cling to concrete when Jesus offered him so much more than he could have ever imagined. And as we step into 2017, here's my encouragement for you. What's the more you're going to live for this year? What's the more that you've you're, you're pursuing in 2017. And if we take our cue from Jesus, or if you're willing to take your cue from Jesus, then he would say, the more worth living for is that there's more to your faith, there's more to faith in general, and there's more to life than what you've experienced. And over the next few weeks, we'll unpack that more and talk about what does it mean to have a year that's the best year yet. But it begins on this foundation of us saying to ourselves and to God and to one another, there's more to faith and there's more to life.